I like to I like to say that, you know, God or nature could not have created a worse investor than you or I, uh, because, you know, we are wired for immediacy. We're wired for certainty. We're wired for safety. And if you think about what's required of us in financial markets, it's coping with uncertainty. Uh, it's, you know, taking a longer term view. It's taking risk to get a future reward, you know, at some uh, undetermined future date. And so, I mean, uh, we are wired backwards of how we should be wired uh, in, in almost every respect. Hi, it's Caroline Stephen, financial journalist. We have a brilliant interview on Talking Trading today with behavioral finance psychologist, Dr. Daniel Crosby. Daniel is one of the leading authorities on the practical application of behavioral finance, and he explains it in such a way that makes it even more fascinating. If you ever wondered why trading is such a difficult endeavor to master, Daniel explains how our primitive brains are wired exactly 180 degrees from what trading asks us to do. You see, in two and a half thousand years, our caveman brains have not changed at all. Daniel explains all the primitive response mechanisms we have as share traders. Why, for instance, are we two and a half times more likely to remember a loss than a comparable size win? Well, in today's show, we find out. As you can tell, I'm really excited to bring Dr. Daniel Crosby to the show. He explains so much about our basic psychology, which ultimately empowers us to be better share traders. But first on today's show, the price of West Texas intermediate crude oil last week went into negative dollars for the first time in history. So let's look at crude oil around the planet last week and what happened. Oil is called the lifeblood of planet Earth. Last week, Brent crude and West Texas crude oil plunged to nearly two decade lows. So what caused this massive drop in oil? Well, there has been a price war going on between Russia and Saudi Arabia, which has led to a significant drop in the price of oil this year. And as Chris Tate said in the last two shows, that his major profits for 2020 have come from shorting crude. But this drop has been furthered by coronavirus, Corona, as we know, has put major cities around the world into lockdown, air travel's being curtailed, millions of people are working from home, leading to fewer commuters on the road and less demand for oil. OPEC and its allies Russia have announced sweeping 10% cuts in production. However, coronavirus has seen a 30% drop in demand. For West Texas crude, the storage facilities are literally brimming and holders were in the unprecedented position of having to pay people to take crude, causing West Texas oil futures to sink below $0 for the first time in history. If you do trade oil futures, here's a quick look at some of the differences between Brent and West Texas crude. Firstly, Brent crude comes from the oil fields in the North Sea, located between the United Kingdom and Norway. While West Texas is sourced from U.S. oil fields, not surprisingly primarily from Texas, but also Louisiana and North Dakota. Brent is produced near the sea, so transportation costs tend to be lower than the landlocked areas of West Texas crude. However, West Texas crude is considered sweeter 
and lighter than Brent. Its offshore rigs are famous for the BP oil leak of 2010, which was made more famous by the movie Deepwater Horizon. OPEC is a group of 13 of the most powerful oil exporting countries, and Brent is considered the global pricing benchmark for oil, while West Texas crude is the main pricing model used in the USA. There has been a trend due to advancements in drilling and fracking of West Texas crude, which has been dubbed the American shale revolution and enabled America to become oil sufficient. But for now, the main US storage hub of West Texas crude in Cushing, Oklahoma, is expected to be full within weeks. And we remain to see what the price of oil does as traders we watch the share price action. Hi, I'm Terrence O'Dean, the Red Family Foundation Professor of Finance at UC Berkeley, and I like talking trading. Today we are joined by the way cool behavioral finance psychologist, Dr. Daniel Crosby. Daniel is the New York Times best-selling author of The Laws of Wealth, as well as The Behavioral Investor. He also hosts his own podcast called Standard Deviation, which looks at money, mind and meaning all through a psychological lens. He's also given TEDx talks, including You're Not That Great, which I'm sure we're going to touch on in today's interview. Dr. Daniel Crosby, all the way from Atlanta, hello and welcome to Talking Trading. Carolyn, thank you for having me. That was quite a long introduction. Lovely to have you on the show. Yes, great, great to be here. Great to be here. Daniel, behavioral finance sounds fancy. But let's cut to the chase. What is it? So it's not it's not fancy. It sounds fancy, but all it is at, at its root is finance that accounts for the messiness of human behavior. So I find it even a little bit of a false distinction that there is such a thing as behavioral finance because all finance is behavioral. And so I hope that one day there will be no separate entity of behavioral finance, that we will just understand how deeply psychology is integrated into all this thing we call finance. Uh, and, and it'll be, you know, just one thing. But until then, uh, it's finance that accounts for our own silliness and irrationality. Our own silliness. Now, just to get a bit of background on you, your father was a financial advisor, but you studied psychology. Yeah, he's he still is a financial advisor. He's still at it. So um, my yeah, my dad is a financial advisor. I went to school to be a psychologist, thinking that I was going to save the world. I uh, quickly quickly found out that saving the world didn't pay that well, and that it was also very very taxing uh, from just a sort of a personal stress standpoint. And so I started. <laughs> I started looking for non-clinical applications of psychology and, you know, found found my way to the world of investing uh, in, in finance. So, yeah, um, yeah, I, I studied as a clinical psychologist. My Ph.D. is in clinical psychology, uh, but yet I've spent my career uh, in finance. OK, you're the second behavioral psychologist we've had. We've had Terry O'Dean on the show. Oh, great. Great pioneer. Let's start with the human brain. If we go back to caveman times, our brains are pretty much hardwired the same way. Our primal wiring is to avoid the dangerous animal out there and to pass on our genes. But financial markets are a modern day phenomenon. 
how well do our brains cope with this concept of trading and investing? So uh, in, in short, very, very poorly. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> I, like to, I like to say that, you know, God or nature could not have created a worse investor than you or I. Uh, because, you know, we are wired for immediacy, we're wired for certainty, we're wired for safety. And if you think about what's required of us in financial markets, it's coping with uncertainty, uh, it's, you know, taking a longer term view, it's taking risk to get a future reward, you know, at some uh, undetermined future date. And so, I mean, uh, we are wired backwards of how we should be wired uh, in, in almost every respect. And, you know, to your point, we could talk about this for a long time, but, you know, to your point, our brains have not had an, uh, a substantial upgrade in 250,000 years. Uh, and yet financial markets, developed financial markets are only about 400 years old. And so there's this there's this enormous mismatch between what we were made for, which you appropriately said was sort of, you know, feeding, fighting and passing on our genes uh, and, and what is required of us to be a successful investor. Just a complete mismatch. Let's talk more about what we're hardwired for and why it's such a mismatch. We're hardwired to avoid the beast, to avoid being hungry and to procreate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we are um, we are wired. You know, a lot of a lot of what behavioral finance talks about is this asymmetry between how we process risk and reward. So you know, it's well documented that we're two and a half times as upset about a loss as we are pleased about a comparably sized gain, which leads us to be loss averse and risk averse. And if you think about that from an evolutionary standpoint, if you have a good day or you're happy. Uh, who cares? You know, I mean, who who cares from an evolutionary standpoint? Uh, it doesn't go a long way towards survival. But if you avoid a potential pitfall, if you avoid something dangerous, that's a very, very big deal uh, because you can only, you know, you only get to die once. And so we are wired to to protect and we are not wired to take risk. And so that's where that asymmetry comes from. You can only you, you only get you know, one or two bad decisions, really bad decisions in a lifetime, uh, you know, at least back in the day when, when we lived more dangerous lives. And so that's why we're sort of wired that way. And it's what makes it so, so difficult. I think especially at times like these, uh, when the world is sort of upside down, uh, that there's nothing we hate more than uncertainty. And so uh, that's, that makes this whole endeavor profoundly hard. And the people who take it on um, you know, the people who take on professions as investors or or, uh, or investors or traders, we're sort of a weird lot. So. <laughs> you talk about three types of risk and why we're so bad at gauging our own risk behavior. Why is that? Uh, so we we fall prey to a to a couple of problems um, when we're when we're talking about risk. There's a few things that when you ask someone, you know, how comfortable are you taking risk? First of all, that's going to be profoundly, um, profoundly influenced by a couple of factors. One of them is what's called the affect heuristic, which is basically like what kind of mood are you in? What was the affect you know, heuristic? Affect. So affect is like emotion and heuristic is like a rule of thumb. 
So it basically means we use affective or emotional rules of thumb when, when assessing our own risk tolerance. So if I ask Carolyn, who's just had a very, very good day, you know, hey, you know, how likely are you to take risk? You've had a good day. And so you're not seeing risk anywhere. You're just seeing, you know, sunshine and rainbows. And so you go, yeah, take some risk. But if I ask you after you've had a really bad day, be it in life or in the markets, how comfortable are you taking risk? And you're going to see danger looking around every corner. So the, the mood we're in has a lot to do with how we assess risk. And I mean, it, it, if you think about something like boating, okay? So if you, if you think about something like boating and you ask people, is boating dangerous? Most people would go, no, boating's not dangerous. Uh, and it is very dangerous. And you ask someone, you know, is being a long-term investor dangerous? And they would go, well, yes, you know, I don't want to be, you know, part of the Wall Street casino. But what happens is because there's so many inputs to risk, we answer an easier question. It's this thing we do to sort of uh, reduce our cognitive load. We answer an easier question. So instead of answering, is, is boating dangerous and looking at the salient factors, we just we answer the easier question, which is, is boating fun? And since boating is fun, we go, ah, oh, it's, no, it's not risky. But something like investing, which is boring to most people, uh, even though it's not risky in the long run, they, they perceive it as risky because they answer an easier question. So we're, we're really, really bad at assessing our own risk tolerance. And really the best thing that you can do is just look at what you've done previously. You know, if you panicked in 0809, you're likely to be panicking today. And no matter, you know, no matter what any assessment says, you know, you have a low tolerance for risk and you should you should plan accordingly. You talk about four primary types of behavioral errors. What are they? So the four uh, the four primary types, I'll just sort of rattle them off and then we can we can go where you'd like to go with them. Uh, but the first is ego. So this is our tendency yeah. to yeah. So this is our tendency to be overconfident, which is um, especially problematic in the in the male of the species. We've got <laughs> we've got emotion, which is this tendency to have our emotional state color our perception of risk and reward. Uh, we've got attention, which is our tendency to be drawn in by uh, lurid or vivid descriptions of risk and, and weight them as more likely. Uh, we, we tend to rate risks as likely or unlikely based on how um, scary or vivid they are and not actually how likely they are. Uh, and then the last one is conservatism, which is this, this preference for, uh, for the status quo, this preference to hang on to our money, uh, and, and not take risks. So those are sort of the big four. There's there's like 200 different biases that that scientists have now codified, but but they all load on to those sort of four things. Which one of those do you want to touch on more? Because they're all good to me. Let's go with ego, so you can roast guys. Let's let's give you a chance to pick on guys for being egotistical. Sounds good to me. <laughs> so. Um, one of the themes that you know you'll see when you start researching human psychology as it intersects with with uh, investing psychology is that all of these biases are there for a reason. 
So if you look at something like ego, which is our tendency to to think of ourselves as, you know, smarter, luckier, more precise, better looking, funnier, you know, than than the next person that really serves in our in our everyday life. It really serves a real protective function, because if we saw how basic and lame and typical we were, <laughs> we might, uh, you know, we might never get out of bed, right? And we, and we certainly wouldn't do things like start a small business, right? Like starting a small business is, probabilistically speaking, dumb every time. Like the, the only reason that anyone ever starts a small business is because they're, uh, they have ego, right? They're, they're overconfident in the strictest mathematical sense of that word. And yet we're glad people start small businesses. We're glad people start restaurants. You know, both both of these things are on uh, mathematically speaking, really dumb choices. And yet yet we're glad people do it. And so ego has a really protective function for us. It gets us out of bed in the morning. It keeps us working It makes us happy. Right. It's, it's a big part of the reason why we feel happy. And yet when we bring it to financial markets, uh, it can lead us to to overtrade, to take excessively concentrated positions, uh, to be overactive, to be under diversified, to do you know to do a host of different things, and so you'll see very consistently in the research things that have a a supportive or an adaptive function elsewhere in your life are really really bad for for being a good investor, and so that's why it's so tough as you have to take this this thing that makes you feel warm and fuzzy and insulated and nice and you have to just rip it to shreds and understand how basic and how average you are. And it's a very, very tough thing for, for most people to do. The markets don't lie. Yeah. Th- thank you for that. That's really good to hear from a guy, a PhD. Can we, <laughs> can we talk about emotionalism? Yeah, let's, so let's, let's talk about emotion. So emotion was nature's first ever risk tolerance questionnaire, right? So emotion was put in place for us to get gut level feelings about things uh, with which we might not have perfect data. And so you see that emotion works in, in certain parts of our lives, like in dating, you know, if you look at dating and people who have a bad feeling about someone they're, they've maybe gone on a date with, that's usually predictive of bad outcomes, right? So these gut level feelings work in certain places. And again, they have an adaptive function in life because if we have a lot of experience with something, you know, if we have, if we had a lot of experience with something, many times our, our gut can be very predictive. Uh, if you even look at, if you even look at, um, there's been studies where people are dealt um, an unfair hand. So, like one one deck of cards, they're dealt cards from two decks. Uh, one is sort of stacked, one is sort of rigged, and people will start to feel an emotional response to the unfairness of the one deck before they can articulate sort of cognitively which one is uh, which one is the rig deck so in in some parts of life emotion can give us this early warning system and yet we also see that when it's applied to investing once again 
emotion is a very, very poor uh, early warning system because markets are so dynamic and so vibrant that you really never walk through the same river twice, so to speak. And so these gut level intuitions that serve us so well elsewhere in life serve us again poorly in markets. And we find that the best traders are are nearly sociopathic, right? They nearly... Um, it's reassuring. Yeah, that's... There's your quote. There's your quote of the day. There's there's one of uh, that I forget who did the the study, but there was a study that that I cited in the behavioral investor that said the best traders are, are functional sociopaths, right? That they're able to completely divorce their emotions from the process of trading, and we even see things like um, people with people with a part of their brain associated with emotion. If, if they have a traumatic brain injury and the part of their brain associated with, with creating emotion is damaged, they can't do things like pick out which um, suit to wear or pick out you know what flavor of ice cream they want because these things, even really simple decisions, have an emotional undercurrent to them. But they're great investors. like They're great gamblers and they're great investors because they're able to just think mathematically and just think probabilistically. So, you know, uh, we, we also see research that people who are multilingual and who make investment decisions in their non-preferred language make better decisions because it, it causes them to slow down, be more deliberative and more thoughtful and less emotional. So anything you can do to sort of divorce emotion from from your trading and investing strategy is, is a very powerful thing. And that is all from Dr. Daniel Crosby for today and part one of his interview. I hope you enjoyed him. Stay tuned next week to hear the second part of his interview and more of his insights. I'm Caroline Stephen. Happy trading. Take care. As always, if you like this show, please be sure to tell a friend. This is super important because word of mouth is the most powerful way that people can get in touch with us. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcast and make sure you give us a big fat five-star review because it helps people find us. You'll also notice that Talking Trading doesn't use sponsors and barely advertisers. This is because Chris Tate and Louise Bedford fund this show from tradinggame.com.au. If you'd like to get Louise's five-part free e-course, register at tradinggame.com.au. So until next week, happy trading. The views represented on Talking Trading are general in nature and do not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. Before acting on any of the information, consider its appropriateness in regards to your own situation. Want to know the hottest sectors in the Aussie market? Now's your chance. Download my free Hot or Not special report from tradinggame.com.au slash hot or not. That website again, tradinggame.com.au slash hot or not.